0: Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith, in the beautiful inland Northwest.
1: Are you wondering where my sermons went? Or where Saturday Morning Chill went? Well, sorry, it wasn't really clear about this in every avenue. I figured most of you would find me if you wanted to. But if you are looking for those things, they've just diverged into new podcasts. So you'll have to search iTunes or Spotify for Saved. That'll get you the sermons of Pastor Fisk. And uh, Stop the White Noise with Jonathan and Meredith. That's the Saturday morning show. It is available in audio, again, in Spotify or iTunes. Stop the White Noise and Saved. You should check them out. At
0: 7,123 feet... You can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at our Savior Lutheran Church and School a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org.
1: Dr. Kuntz, which kingdom are we fighting for? <laughs>
2: oh, any number of them, I'd say. Because I, the the part of that question that is easy to answer, which is that you're fighting for the kingdom of Christ, is simple enough. And I, and I think clear enough, although the way to do that involves also the kingdom, you know, let's say metaphorically for whatever sort of polity you live in at whatever level, the way to do that partly runs through that other kingdom over which Christ is also Lord and ruler, but which has, you know, different intermediaries, different rules, uh, for your municipality and your nation, wherever you are, and things like that. So, at least two, let's say, and they are intertwined, maybe in ways that they want to be, and maybe in ways that, that they don't want to be, and, and probably not in ways that you recognize. I mean, I, I think that a big part of the problem that we have in fighting for the church in the United States is the teaching people have received. I don't know if they got it officially or not, but the idea that, you know, the church and everything else are just so separate that everything is different, everything, and it doesn't matter what happens in the, you know, quote, the outside world, or I even hear people say the secular world by which they mean every other part of life besides church, or even besides the divine service. Those things are much more intertwined, I think, than we have given them credit for. And it doesn't mean that somehow Jesus needs help and he can't defend the church on its own terms. It means that we have responsibilities in all different kinds of realms, all different parts of life, in addition to our responsibilities, strictly speaking, inside the divine service. And because we don't, I think, talk enough about that, and I, this podcast is to some degree an attempted remedy at not talking about all of that, we, we have chaos even in how we govern our churches, let alone in how we relate to the government. And everything that I just said applied in 2017, as well as it does now.
1: Yeah, one of the key takeaways from the last two years is not that everything changed, it's just a lot of us went, wait a minute, <laughs> but but it's been here all along with or without yep. SARS-CoV-2 and whatnot. The, the concept of the two kingdoms just jumped into my mind this last week before any information came from you across my plate. As something that I wanted to rediscover and re-embrace as part of my way to crawl out of the despair that uh, COVID had indeed left me in, whatever man-made or not uh, that was, man, that was deep. Um, but it 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 led to a lot of good introspective philosophical angst, and I I found that the uh, the theological solution has been. Uh, I can summarize in two two lines here, uh, remembering two kingdoms and that uh, they're both real, uh, but one surpasses the other, and then that crossing over Jordan is indeed kind of the goal uh, not not building something in the wilderness uh, while we're here. So uh, from there to leap toward though, you know, I've always avoided two kingdom talk in my teaching and preaching largely because of the caricature of Lutheran jargon which has turned it into sort of an ad hoc church state concept that, as you point out, has led to chaos in our organizational polity Uh in which we kind of think, well, you need a board of elders for the spiritual stuff and you need a council for the, uh, the the you know the other stuff that's not spiritual at all, and and, and you have these the segmentation of life in which religion is over there in a corner, and then there's the real stuff that we have to deal with. And I just don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said, you know, my kingdom's not of this world. Uh, So again, again, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. You know, these two things go hand in hand, and the the Christian has his foot firmly planted—I say both feet—firmly planted in both kingdoms. It's just a matter of, you know, which one's going to endure longer, I think.
2: Right. And, and all that Christ means when he says not of this world is a statement about origin. That is, his kingdom is not founded upon the will, the exertions, the history of men. That doesn't mean that those things founded by human beings are therefore things about which we really could be completely irrelevant. I mean, I, if you know enough about the early church, the best parallel that you can see to the way that a lot of Lutherans reflexively think about every part of life that isn't strictly speaking quote religious is monks okay in the early church who depart and go into the desert and I'm not even talking about the ones that do get politically involved and are brought out of the desert into cities to riot at certain times in favor of certain theological positions. I'm talking about the guys that just want to live in the desert and be left alone. I just want to read their Bible, and, right? I mean, there's like, yeah, some, yeah. Find a copy of Matthew and sit with it for a while. Fight the demons. And the, the idea that somehow that any of that could exist. I mean, my, my critique here of Luther, of it, it, it's not even Lutheranism in any abstract sense. It is popularly what we generally do. So for instance, The church defers to lawyers rather than having lawyers understand theology and figure out how to protect that theology. We just defer to legal processes or we defer to human resources, you know, directives or something rather than having human resources or money or law or the military or anything else serve the promulgation of the gospel, which is what the point is supposed to be right that's what the princes in the book of concord are pledging themselves to do in their territories is to help further this doctrine okay not that the way that they think about force or building roads or collecting taxes gets to determine where and how and when and why the doctrine will be promulgated so the idea that somehow there are just whole realms of life that don't matter And don't have to answer to any sort of, you know, even in your own private life. So you're religious over here. And then over here, you just follow whatever your boss is telling you, or you run your marriage according to how you saw in sitcoms or whatever. That is so obvious. I mean, I don't, our listeners don't really need to hear that, but our listeners are unfortunately not yet normal. Yeah. in Lutheran churches, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. They might be in some Lutheran churches, but not most of them. And so the problem here is that w- what we're doing is we're, we're. I mean, it's, it's very much like my critique of the Benedict option. It's like, it's fine if you just want a world where you go to church and it's divine service three every Sunday and there's always community. Like, that's wonderful, okay? I completely agree with you. There are a lot of other things that go into making that world possible, right? Just like if... Somebody doesn't do the fighting, Benedict and then his successors don't get to hang out in monasteries and copy manuscripts because they would have been run over by Muslim armies. Yeah, Genghis Khan, all that. Yeah. Yeah. So this is just just simple understanding that all of these different vocations and realms of life are necessary and can be God-pleasing, but they need to be ordered towards being God-pleasing, certainly by people who are members of the church. Rather than letting them, and heaven forbid, although I mean, it's happening right in front of our eyes, letting the church itself organize most of its own life according to these non theological directives. Because all that that means, very simply, is that we end up letting. Also, the church, in addition to all those other realms of life, be controlled by something other than the Bible. Right, a different
1: story. I want to come back to that yeah. uh, right before ice thing. Uh, but if I if I could throw a caveat at you know Christ talking about His kingdom not of this world. You mentioned uh, that it's about the origin of His kingdom, and I completely agree. I would like to add though that the concept of extent of His kingdom. That again, this. This kingdom we live in, and I'm not talking about uh, the United States, it is part of this kingdom of this age, uh, the age of the fall and redemption of man, Um, it will pass and the kingdom which Christ has established with the crown of thorns and an empty tomb, uh, it will right. not pass. And right. that is yeah. that is where, right, for my part again, remember that my vassalship is within that kingdom first, and then I stand here as a man from the future, right, in this other dying kingdom with a competency to orient or order, as you said, toward God-pleasing behavior, thought, prayer, and insight. Um, that is then how we impact and serve well the the kingdom of this age even as we we confess it's a, it's a bit of muck and it's all headed for the fire now I'm deferring to lawyers, though. This gets us maybe back to what's right in front of our eyes. I mean, this will be about a week and a half ago by the time that this comes out. But it, it came out oh. on Twitter, a, a little missive from the LCMS International Center. This is Corporate Synod. I had a call there a little while ago, working at the radio station. And uh, it got out before some of this uh, 2020 stuff happened. And, but I've, I've counted my blessings since then, I have to say. Um, but it, what came out uh, of this is their submission to the uh, OSHA. Is that who it is? Mandates yeah. uh, for yeah. the corporations that have more than 100 plus employees needing to have vaccination, inoculation, whatever you want to call it, status, and uh, the chief officers of this organization that we tithe to as churches, at least in theory, um, stating that they're gonna they're gonna comply with this order and uh, make all called and non called workers that are there uh, go through what many many other people are having to go through at this time with uh, proving either that they don't have COVID this week, via tests that may or may not work. um, And uh, or uh, I think they're already wearing masks. I don't know. Um, But then, uh, you know, kind of pressuring, letting the soft totalitarian pressure of inoculation status uh, come down, even even in the midst of the possible Supreme Court rulings and Omicron being this thing that might be a godsend of it's a weaker thing that has uh, backwards uh, value in terms of natural immunities, all this. But what we see happening Then is uh, Lutherans on the ground, uh, you know, members of the congregations uh, attending laymen and things like that, saying, what's going on? What happened to my church? And um, I want to hear your opinion, obviously. um, But I I do want to just emphasize uh, corporate sin is not the church. It never has been the church, never will be the church. Corporate Synod is an advisory organization that in theory exists in order to help set up a convention where in theory we agree on doing mission work and supporting seminaries together. Granted, it hasn't quite been that for some time, and and maybe that's why the idol's falling down, if, if I might say it that way. But um, yeah, what are your what are your thoughts on that whole picture, um, and especially the kind of the hair pulling, uh, mind blowing? How is this happening to my church body? Uh, fear that definitely is causing among some.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that it it is like this. Um, this is this is very predictable because all of these other realms of life are understood as somehow, you know, not the gospel or not theological. And because of that, the question is never asked, how will we, you know, let these realms of life serve the gospel, serve our doctrines, serve the idea that, for instance, just the really, I mean, the really basic thing here, and I said this in the article that's up on Godestine's blog right now, um, whether the unvaccinated too can be saved. The basic issue has always been in the COVID stuff, because it's such a test of media compliance, whether your conscience will be controlled by something other than scripture. And the issue here is that even in, even in a case where the major suit behind this is being promulgated, I mean, the first name in that suit against OSHA is the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Hmm. Okay in addition to lots of other religious institutions and others that are not specifically religious in any kind of legally recognizable sense in current American law. So we say compliance is the safest option or whatever. Who cares what their reasoning was? They don't even have to. And the other thing here is it is debatable legally and constitutionally on a more deep level whether any of this is legitimate. Is OSHA supposed to be regulating daily life in these regards? Is any of this supposed to be happening? And this doesn't mean that you like, quote, think about America more than the Bible or something, or you take being a Republican more seriously than being a Christian. That would be like saying, well, the the financial decisions I'm making so that my wife can stay home with the kids, that's me taking being a man more seriously than being a Christian. I mean, it's stupid. That's a stupid division. I'm simultaneously American and male and married and a Christian. I need all of those other vocations to serve the convictions that I have as a servant of Christ. And that's what I'm trying to do. So why don't we try having these things serve our convictions, especially where we have differing convictions about vaccines? Why would we, why would we force certain very sincere christian people who work there to compromise their conscience where obviously christians disagree and none of this has been settled why would we do that well we're doing that because we are afraid of certain things yeah, yeah. Legal whatever whatever else the issue here is that you shouldn't be surprised that this happened because we we got to keep a certain doctrine of the bible thank god in a in a fight in the 1970s but we still tanked demographically so obviously we began making very different decisions about daily life than we had in say the 1950s even though the doctrine stayed the same on paper so no one should be surprised by this and the issue here has always been that you have to integrate your life with the gospel you don't have to keep them separate the life needs to serve the gospel your daily life your congregational life, your synod's life, you know, collective church, however big that is for you. So that's the problem. So we shouldn't be surprised when we fail to integrate or we keep it separate. And then when we keep all of these things separate, always the doctrine, the gospel, the church, our consciences end up being forced to serve other things. That's the way it works when you don't consciously bring every thought, let alone legal decision, employment decision, captive in obedience to Christ. It always works that way. If you're not actively taking prisoners for Christ, you
1: will be taken prisoner. Those are the options. Idolatry always compromises. It just just does. That's what it is. You can't avoid it. The thing that keeps going through my head in this uh, is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm not his biggest fan ever, theologically. I disagree with him about a number of things. I've heard a few stories about his private life. He's not quite the hero they made him in grade school. Perhaps, at least, depending on what revisionist history you want to get into. But what he did do, <laughs> yeah, what he did do, is he convinced a huge group of people that nonviolent resistance was a good idea. And I, and so what keeps running through my head here with regard to this question about the corporate synod is like what's the worst that really—what's the thing that happens if they don't comply? And how fast would that thing happen, right? You just you just don't do it. You just don't send in the paperwork. You just see what happens. And we're not even—we're not willing to try. Why? Why? And what are we afraid of losing? That That's the question there. And then that's where, again, the idolatry is always going to expose itself in the fear of the belly, uh, the the belief that somehow this man-made thing— this little kingdom we've got, this little outpost we've built here, that it surpasses the institution which uh, Christ has said will outlast all things—His body and His blood, they are risen from the dead. Uh, so, um, yeah. Any, any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I, I think, and the reason that I, I, I include details on on the show, and certainly in the discussion on Discord, that might seem arcane to people. Okay is because detail is of the essence of actually pursuing wisdom within a given situation, right? So if somebody wants advice on their life or advice on their marriage or something like that, I want to spend as much time as I possibly can listening before I say something, because there are overarching principles, such as in this case, we should use these other realms of life in order to serve Christian consciences and the proclamation of the word of God. And probably everyone agrees with that, okay, in, in, the, in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Senate, theoretically, right? The nature of detail, whether it's historical detail or a current detail in your life, making decisions about your family's finances or making decisions about compliance or non-compliance to, you know, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, does that even constitute? Like, does that have to be there? You know, like those kinds of decisions involve detail. Your being kept stupid about historical detail or theological detail prevents you from being able to be wise, and wisdom is what you are called to be. It called to exercise to to ask for in James one, mm-hmm. and then to exercise in daily life. So, not having detail, right, about say like I mean, I, let me just go through just for the sake of memory three reasons we didn't have to do this one is it's under judicial review so why are you complying with something that is completely utterly even in the eyes of msnbc debatable right now number two why would you do like what's your theological justification for bracketing these things out legally and you know human resources wise to invent an adverb okay do you have a theological reason it's I mean, this is church. Yeah, it's, it's a corporation, but it's also church in some loose sense. Number three, is OSHA's mandate on businesses of a certain size, but not, you know, is, is that even constitutional? Because actually living in the United States and being an American citizen, you do need to figure that out. That's not optional. That's like saying, well, I'm a man, but I don't want to figure out. How to sacrifice for my family. So, I guess I'll make my wife do it. Well, you can do that and life might actually go on, but you're shirking your vocation. Mm -hmm. So, this doesn't have to do with like, I mean, I, I think sometimes when people hear me say America, they think it's some sort of like George W. Bush style flag waving. This is just reality. You live here. I was born here. I don't have another option right? I'm not married to another woman than my wife and I don't live in another country. So I need to either accept those responsibilities and exercise them, especially where they obviously are overreach, unprecedented overreach, or I can shirk those responsibilities and live with the consequences of that. I think that generally we shirk the responsibility because I think we think we can have the church stuff and just ignore everything else like how the families operate and what media you look at and whether or not you let the government do whatever it wants to you. And the fact is you just can't, you can't, you can't do that. (laughs) There's a horribly steep cost to those things. That's why like discussing Ray Winkle, you know, I mean, that's just one historical example, but he wanted to lay out after World War II because he saw it as the biggest danger and he was right, is that, you know, look, you want, if you, if you don't want to fight communism, that's fine. You can, you can live in a world in which politics doesn't exist. Great. Go live there. Just realize that anywhere that it has been successful, the church will be destroyed. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So you just moved to Idaho. It'll be okay then. Right. <laughs>
2: well, I mean, they're fighting in Idaho too. You have to, that's exactly, no exactly where my that point. You, there's no way that you're going to go that you cannot fight. Yes.
1: Yes. The problem I've seen in our Discord chat about this thing um, is just that, though, the idea that there are some places that you can move and it'll be safe there. And th- th- that's not how this works. They might be a little bit more of a stronghold, um, but, you know, they're, they're still spitting on windows of churches and stuff and, and literally uh, walking I, down the street I, to do yeah, it.
2: I mean, I I mean, I'm I'm agnostic about this. People want to live in California. They want to live in Idaho. That's their call. I think that these are these are realms where it's like, I can tell you a lot of things on this podcast, you have to make decisions for your own life. And if someone wants to deal with vaccine passports or or doesn't, or wants to deal with schooling formally or homeschooling or doesn't, you know, I, I'm trying to provide ways of making you not be stupid so you can make better, wiser decisions for your family, for your church. Yeah, That's all we're doing here. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And I'm yeah. not saying don't move to Idaho. I'm just saying wherever you go, this fight's still there. And if you've got the stronghold, you gotta to fight to keep it, right? It's not you can't go there and uh, kind of recluse into uh, we're a safe Lutheran compound now and we'll just be monks over here, right? We'll just do our divine service three and everything's great like the eighties and, and fine. Uh, it, it it won't stay that way. Uh, and um that's where again, you know, before you move anywhere, consider where you are. And whether or not you can fight, and absolutely. I mean, if you can, in New York City, are you kidding me? I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, it it's going to follow you. This is the Ray Winkle idea, right? It's going to follow you. Uh, you. You you have to be mentally prepared to see what the threat actually is, to call it what it is, and not dismiss it as something having to do with the Left Hand Kingdom, and so nothing to do with the Church. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: that's right. And, and that was all. the The problem is. That was always true. it's just that for a very long time and and maybe for a couple generations, we thought that life was for lack of a better word set
1: yeah that's right
2: and and therefore the only struggles were inside the church the only struggles were about let's say worship style but but life kind of went on normally and people formed families and churches existed. <laughs> You know, that's, I mean, just a very bare verb. They existed. I mean, the church that, you know, uh, Jen and I got married in doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, right. So when you start thinking about things in terms of survival, we're just all, we, this has always been true. I mean, it, it's, it's always been like this. It's just that the stakes didn't, we, we were like, we were like children that grew up with silver spoons in our mouths. Mm. We didn't understand how life operates and what is necessary right and now i mean i think thank god we we have been forced to do so
1: yeah the mass psychosis was was there already right even though right. um some may have stuck with it now right uh so okay one of the the challenges with two kingdom talk beyond you know what we've already mentioned so far might be the fact that there aren't any kingdoms like right? just i mean you know britain's nah it's not really you know i mean arabia yeah um uh, but like we tend to talk about civilization instead of instead of kingdoms uh we've removed the idea of headship largely from any any level of order in life although we still understand strongmen um but uh, so let's let's kind of shift in that direction i mean is there a distinction mm-hmm. between kingdom and civilization that, that you would have um or yeah. again let's define civilization
2: yeah a civilization is a way that generally historians especially, but also people in other, let's say disciplines, define human beings being together in an organized way, politically, economically, religiously. A a non-civilization could be a human group, but it probably doesn't have especially stable agriculture. And it probably has some form of tribal government of some kind, you know, in some in some shape. So, civilization actually is probably not determinedly monarchical. It, it could be, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, that's, that's more about the fact that you have a civitas, a, a city. A kingdom could, I suppose, exist without a civilization of any kind. It generally does not, because otherwise the authority, which could be maybe royal is tribal and probably mobile. Because at base, when you're talking about civilization, or a non-civilized human group, probably called a tribe, you're talking about whether you have sedentary agriculture or not. That's really the most basic uh, element in civilization. Everything else is built on top of that secure food supply yeah, that's
1: really interesting in that um you know what we call kings in the in the old testament in the ancient world are effectively uh, rulers of cities that you know they're they're mayors right. that exactly. kill people yep. you know um uh not that that doesn't happen in south chicago but um so then th- They also tend to have a wall. That seems to be one of the big important things back then. But the wall is so that the people who are doing the agriculture around the city can have somewhere to run uh, when the people who don't have cities come and try to take or when greater, bigger cities come and try to to take it all over. Um, So there seemed to be a lot of overlap in that uh, that, um, initial definition with the word culture. Um, but there also is that distinction of you know it's the bottom of culture it's the thing that's necessary for culture to exist I mean, is that a good thing to say?
2: Right. Yeah, because I mean I mean again culture could exist in some sort of mobile tribe I mean I mean the Bedouin have culture yeah, right yeah. and they always have and that's kind of attractive to the Arabs that that have always lived in towns but civilization propagates culture much more widely and probably in many cases much longer in a more enduring fashion. I mean, the Romans still impact us. The Goths, <laughs> the original ones, not the ones with uh, mascara in high schools, the Goths uh, don't impact us nearly so much, even though we speak a language more closely related, you and I, to Gothic hmm. than to Latin. But civilization takes things that exist apart from it and gives it a, an, an enduring basis enduring both for just power generally but also for culture for the arts for the sciences for almost every other realm of human endeavor
1: so education or uh, well I said that, that's that exists in tribal culture too right education and, yeah. and the passing yep. of tradition um, yep. and those things I mean, at least, so far as I understand it, uh, a tribal culture can pass things on for for many, many generations orally. We don't like to think that because we like right. our books, but there there's um, there were a lot of things that oral cultures held on to that we've we've long forgotten and uh, and can't seem to pass things on at least in the digital culture. So, and this this continues to be a concept I'm, I'm struggling to get my head around. Um, I remember writing a paper uh, for my anthropology 201 class or whatever in in. Um, in uh, college, about how civilization didn't exist, and the the I think I wrote it because the prof said don't write a paper on this, and so I'm you know I'm like okay, sure, <laughs> and yeah, so I, right. I, I'm gonna <laughs> do it anyway. He gave me a B plus, which tells me I think I, I wrote a good paper, um, and he didn't like it. Um, but it, again, trying to pin it down though, um, it, it still it still seems I mean agriculture seems to be the best thing to point to here at this point. For.
2: For the understanding of civilization, yes. For culture, I don't think so because civilizations and, and you know, I'll say it in a, in a little bit why it is that we're, we're starting there, especially with this new year. Civilizations endure because of a large number of factors and fall because of a large number of factors, most of which aren't cultural. You could have a wonderful culture really worth preserving. And it could be obliterated rapidly. (laughs) You know, that's, yeah, that's why like, yeah, I mean that going back to our kind of divine service three with holy communion discussion, that is a wonderful thing. It could be obliterated legally, especially if you believe you're required to comply and there it goes and it's gone. So culture predates civilized, can exist without civilization but also often need civilization to endure, right? So the Romans still impact us, but you know they're not they're not speaking Latin in Rome anymore. Uh, so that changed. And when you're thinking about culture, thinking of it as being nurtured by civilizations and needing to interact with civilizations is important. I mean, Paul does this. Uh, when he's preaching the gospel, he's simp- he doesn't try to change the fact that the Jews want to live in one way that he has understood is no longer mandated by the word of God. And the Greeks live in another way that is also not necessarily evil. And so he can shift be- between these things, but he has to live within them when he is proclaiming the gospel to these people. Similarly, I don't get to opt out and just say, okay, well, you know i wish whatever history had gone differently in pick your year
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know right.
2: i wish woodrow wilson hadn't lied to us about world war 1 you know i like, i cry myself to sleep every night thinking about that
1: too late dark times yeah.
2: too late so, so so i have i have to i have to live inside the historical parameters provided by for almost all of us certainly for all the listeners whatever civilization I find myself yeah, inside. Yeah.
1: So so now I'm leaning on um, civilization is shared lawfulness. Does that work?
2: Uh, it's more than that. Okay. Because when the, and the guy that we're going to use and just really briefly is Carol Quigley's book, tragedy and hope. And the reason I'm using that book throughout this year, and we're going to take detours. We're going to take detours into the history of finance. We're going to take detours into the history of the pharmaceutical industry. But the reason I'm doing that is because it's a framework for history up to and including the time that really defines our legal order, including a certain understanding of human rights and the the way that that is ensured by multinational and international bureaucracies and corporations. That book is accessible. It's in English. It's one volume, so it's big, but you can get it and you can kind of follow along and figure out where things are going and make your own decisions. And I really don't agree with it on some level, but it's an excellent interlocutor. And one thing that is really helpful about him is that he's very attentive to all the different factors that go into a civilization. And so when you're thinking about that, it's not just shared lawfulness, you know, could be things on the books but it could also be the set of social parameters Absolutely, governing yeah yeah governing that that are vastly different for people in northern minnesota than in east texas and so those those things may not may not even be civilizationally definite civilizations are undergirded by for instance the fact that you know this is just a really basic one and you know quigley doesn't really discuss this because he's very in- interested in Finance as the underpinning for ours, which right. is very true, but just something probably the listener hasn't thought too much about. You know, the American continent gets progressively drier once you get west of the Mississippi River. So, if you look at pre-industrial America, and I don't just mean like Anglo-Americans; I mean anyone that was on the continent, you're going to get much denser population historically anywhere east of the Mississippi. So, especially the Mississippi River Valley, and Ohio River Valley and indian populations were probably biggest in what we would call the southeast that's because just naturally it's really hard to grow stuff as you get progressively closer to the rockies and we really only overcame that civilizationally through railroads and then we only got large numbers of people to move there in what got you know discussed as like the growth of the sun belt with the interstate highway system and the automobile. So if we don't have like Quigley would be really attentive in that specific case to, we need fossil fuels. We need to be able to exploit them. You know, all of these things that make life possible in North Dakota or Colorado or Arizona, where there were people there, there were even whites there with the help of the railroads, but the numbers and the nature of the thing is very different if you lose some of those factors and the ability to ship food rapidly. Yeah, there was no Walmart like there. <laughs> right. <laughs> so civilization involves, yes, shared laws like, you know, this is how we get, this is how we lawfully get roads built. This is how we lawfully get, you know, this is where the finance comes from to build the railroads or something. But it also involves the engineering capacity to do that. It involves the capacity to get water for all those people that live on the front range or in the Phoenix area or wherever. So all of those factors go into civilization. And that's why Quigley identifies a limited number of them in human history, because you're talking about really enormous, often centuries long, sometimes millennia long, if you want to look at, say, Northeast Asian civilization, mm-hmm. China, Korea, Japan, as enormous ongoing enterprises, human enterprises, which are not even a single, let's say, nation state necessarily, even in the case of Japan, not a single nation state for all of its civilizational history.
1: So you're speaking my language and you use the word framework. Uh, Proverbs have caused me to love that word. Uh, Yeah. uh, But so this seems like just too easy a question for me but i think it needs to be answered yeah. so wh- why do we need frameworks you know what what good is that i mean so what you're, yeah. you this year you want to set the 20th century in a framework that lets us understand it and right. god willing see past it i don't want to say beyond it i are not trying to tell the yeah. future here right you're just trying to no. not be blinded in the now and right. so how does a framework help with that
2: a framework helps with that because it provides clarity because uh, let me just give an example of people that I have talked to person to person in real life about the show. The most common experience that I find you guys have is that first it's some specific life question, often schooling. People often come in through the kid prison episodes. <laughs> hey, there you go. <laughs> which is you know, which is great. And you begin to think about your daily life. And that's wonderful. If we're going to cooperate and build anything lasting on a level above an individual family or even an individual congregation, then you have to have a bigger framework for understanding where things have come from and therefore where they could possibly go. So if I understand that it's really hard to keep the American West, let's say as a a mega region, part of the United States without the capacity, without the engineering capacity to create and sustain enormous infrastructure networks that make those long distances over arid places feasible, then I understand that, you know, this is a difficulty I'm going to have if we have this community or this group of families or this group of churches in Northern Arizona or whatever. Right. So that's just like a, off the top of my head example. So I want a framework because a framework is going to give me an understanding that, okay, technological difficulties, for example, so th- this is, this is a, this is a Quigley ism technological difficulties are more easily surmountable than ideological difficulties. <laughs> And that actually makes a lot of sense, just take the example of the American Civil War. We don't actually have a technological difficulty, except that we have to overcome, at that time, the railroads in the United States, and especially between North and South, have different gauges. You have a basic engineering problem. If we didn't want to kill each other for other reasons, we could have overcome that. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, but then that technological difficulty, the South then brought with them into the Civil War, and that made things that much more complex for them because of the relative lack of track miles and the, just the engine, those, those technological difficulties became more important for daily life than they had been because of the ideological difficulties that were decided to be politically, especially insurmountable. So you have all these different factors. So as we go through, I mean, and I'm, at least the entire year okay not on one book not on one topic but looking at those factors inside this overarching framework of a civilization has an enormous number of components we are generally born into a civilization because quigley has stages of civilizations and the age of expansion or growth the first stage in any civilization most of us are never in most of the people that are ever alive inside a civilization are not in the age when it is coming into being that, I mean, who knows what the future may bring, but we have inherited something. And even if you're in the first age, you're always inheriting something. The middle ages inherit classical antiquity. You know, the Romans inherit the Greeks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Greeks inherit the alphabet from somebody else. So you take elements from the past. And even if you are called upon to build something new, you still have to work with the past. So as we look at, let's say the especially the last 150 years in the West and connected civilizations, we'll be looking at Japan as well. Then we're always dealing with a bunch of different factors. We want to keep in mind, even as we're looking at them, okay, how important is this? Because it's the loss of perspective, both big picture, where are we going? Where have we been? What does it take to sustain life in Nebraska, historically, whatever? But also small picture, like how, okay, this, I, you know, this is a really interesting story about the founding of the Federal Reserve. How important is the Federal Reserve since Bitcoin, right? Like that's a good question to ask that you still want to set within a larger framework of how does money function inside a civilization, especially when the money changes, So that's why we're going to do a framework because it's going to keep us kind of grounded in a sense of we always want to look at a big picture because we don't want to just stay stuck on our hobby horse or our favorite issue or, you know, just what's in front of my eyes right today.
1: Right. If you want to get off a train, it helps to know the trajectory the train is going. If you want to see the trajectory, you got to be outside the train looking down at the top. That's your framework, right? <laughs> and so yeah. so we're trying to, right. to do that a little bit here. And again, I'm going to bring up this phrase, mass formation psychosis. It's been uh, in, the, in the Twitter sphere recently, at least. But I, I think it is a pretty important thing that part of what we're trying to frame is how we came to be a civilization that is in mass formation psychosis, and as a result appears to be not in the expansion or building phase, but in the, in the collapse phase. And having some perspective on that is going to help you, uh, well, not just like decide what to do, I should be a blacksmith right. or something, but like live right now. Honestly, it's, you know, it's going to put you back in your body with an understanding of the present that part of the problem of mass formation psychosis is all about the future. It's it's all about a, a narrative that's controlling tomorrow. And what we want to do is, is live, live today. Um, there's a note I don't want to skip over because I think it's a really fun question. Although we probably yeah. could go on to Carol Quigley and his, his bio, but, um, but yeah. I want to know like how many civilizations have there been or are yeah. there? Um, I want to know what your actual answer is like, is it 347? Like that, that's kind of, it's kind of fun. Yeah,
2: so quick, quigley uh, has a small list. Oh wow. Um, and, and it's, it's about 12 or 14. What are they? Because yeah, um, He's got a lot, he has, yeah, he has a lot that you, if you wanted to draw a line of long continuity, you would call Western civilizations. Okay. Yeah. And you would find if you had a class in such a thing inside a, you know, Western heritage book or something. In addition to Greeks, Romans, he thinks of medieval Europe as its own single civilization. I think part of that is his perspective as an Irish Catholic, Irish American Catholic, but that's that's a very sort of Catholic perspective that the Middle Ages were an enormous unity um, in every way. But he sees uh, British civilization mm-hmm. as being distinct from American. And one that we're going to talk about next week, especially is his understanding, he doesn't believe Russia was ever part of and is not part of Western civilization. And he's got reasons for that that we'll talk about next week. So I don't want to go into them now, but he doesn't, he doesn't see, for instance, a great civilization as ever having arisen in Africa or Polynesia. So, you know, the settlement or the, let's say like the sailing exploits of the Polynesians to settle everything from Hawaii down to, you know, the South Island of New Zealand, he doesn't see as a civilization necessarily. So because his, he, he, because his, sense of factors is large. Just because someone was a king and endured for a while doesn't make it a civilization. Did it have a literature? Did it have arts? Did it have any scientific pursuits? Did it have military conquests? Did it have demographic expansion? Did it have geographic expansion? Did it endure in any way? So he doesn't, I mean, Genghis Khan, for instance, the Mongols generally hold a lot of territory for a while. They're not on his list. But people whom they defeated for centuries, the Chinese, the
1: Russians, are yeah, they, they defeated them and just kind of became part of them, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so the Aztecs wouldn't be the Incas wouldn't be on his list. No,
2: no. And there's, a, there's also a relatively short duration on those things. I think I think splitting up, you know, say the British from I, I, I think because he sees the Middle Ages as a unity he then splits off the british somewhat arbitrarily from all other europeans in the 18th and 19th centuries sees their achievements as unique and doesn't see a certain unity between say you know all northwestern europeans or you know doesn't see the spanish and the portuguese as a certain specific kind of an achievement that is iberian in nature as well as let's say catholic so A lot of this, I mean, his framework is not infallible or anything. And like I say, yeah. Yeah, it's a little arbitrary. And I and I do disagree with a lot of it in specific points, but the coverage is is wonderful of an enormous array of countries and factors. And I think also just the idea that that we have inherited something that is not merely literary or historical is not merely the stuff of you know, secondary or, or maybe college education. So our technological capacities, our sense of right and wrong, especially in, you know, socially and legally dubious situations, those kinds of things are important for us to understand, even if we don't retain everything, or if we try to recover things that have been lost, knowing where they came from is really helpful. Right.
1: All right. So who is this guy? Why is he? Why? Carol Quigley. Uh, Irish Catholic, so so what? (laughs) Yeah,
2: he's an Irish Catholic. He taught at Georgetown for a very, very long time, um, which matters (laughs) because of its intimate connection to various, especially the State Department, but also um, the CIA. And Carol Quigley taught lots of people you may know probably most famously Nancy Pelosi, as well as her husband who met in one of his classes Mm. and was highly influential on Bill Clinton and who is a Georgetown alum as well. I think the law school, if nothing else. So when you think about Carol Quigley, there's that. He He had a real world impact on large portions of our governing class In addition to that, I have found that his ways of describing the world have been relatively on target to the degree that he has been used by people as a a source, by people with whom he explicitly and vehemently disagreed. So there's a guy that the listeners might have heard of named Cleon Skousen, who had a little resurgence about 15 years ago because... Hit, one of his books was a big source for Glenn Beck, who was very hot at the time, kind of pre Tea Party and then you know Tea Party years in American political terms. But Cleon Skousen, in addition to several other folks, especially people influential in the John Birch Society, totally disagreed with Quigley politically. Quigley thought that what both sides would call, at least did at one time call openly the new world order. Quigley thought that that's a good thing, Hmm. (laughs) right? But he could be used by people that vehemently disagreed with him about that because he was giving a fairly objective, clear sense of where these things came from. So specific to our form, if you want to draw that line of continuity I mentioned, if you want to say, okay, we in present day United States of America are a part of Western civilization, the form that we currently occupy, the nature of American, at least the hegemony we used to have in the world, is extremely dependent on what Quigley would describe as financial capitalism
0: mm-hmm.
2: Thank Okay, you. as a specific form of capitalism. And so everyone could agree on that. And that is why he's so helpful. It's not just that it's in English. It's a single volume. And Bill Clinton thought it was a big deal. Our governing class thought it was kind of a big deal, at least at one time. It's because <laughs> I think he's right in the most basic sense that his sense of where things came from and what undergirds them is right. That's why financial questions are so important to understand. It's not because they're, they're easy. It's because they are for our form of civilization. What you know, what supports our system? What keeps it going? Finance is so essential. Yeah,
1: the spice must flow, man. The spice must yeah, flow. Yeah, that's
2: right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is our spice melange. So uh, if we don't know how that gets mined and where that comes from and, and who controls it, then we don't really finally understand what is happening and, and therefore what also could could happen.
1: Yeah. So the the banks rule the world. Uh, what what did he pinpoint? This, this is such a fed question, but I got to ask it. What did he pinpoint in 1966 as the definition of Western civilization? Hmm? Hmm?
2: Yeah, Western civilization for him was, and he puts this in very philosophical terms, and I'm, I'm very grateful for his very broad, you know, classical education that, you know, a Catholic man would have received in, you know, the 1930s. He sees Western civilization as an attempt to permit difference within some kind of general unity. And the unity has historically been, for him, Christianity, although is not by 1966 Christianity necessarily anymore, but let's say values based on Christianity and that therefore Western civilization in distinction certainly to Russia or China values freedom. Now, this all sounds very strange to us now, certainly since 2020, but values freedom Over other things, and he so he doesn't he doesn't think that's just America. He thinks that's Britain and France and Italy and Spain and you know,
1: yeah, uh, the free world, right? They called it the the free free world.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a Cold War atmosphere to the book, but it's not just set inside the terms of the Cold War because he he sees America in you know the early Johnson administration. LBJ not Andrew as the inheritor of thousands of years of a variety of things so he's not looking at the present day in exclusively political terms which you know i fundamentally that is the right thing to do if you're if you're looking at a present challenge or a present difficulty in exclusively political terms you don't truly understand what's at stake let alone what should be done And so, yeah, he's very opposed to Russia. But he's not even just opposed to Russia because it's currently communist. He sees its entire philosophy of life as wrong. And so that, that is also something very interesting is that he doesn't see life as defined even in the West by finance, yes, in some sort of like explanatory, like why is this happening today in New York way? Sure, but not in the sense of like, well, why, why are Americans protesting vaccine passports? He sees that as a basically Western problem if he were alive today, right? Is, you know, why, why don't you just let the state determine what you do with your life? Well, <laughs> That's never been (laughs) our way of life. That would destroy our civilization ideologically, even if it kept, you know, things going financially or whatever the case may be. So he understands civilizations as fundamentally philosophical or even theological things in addition to the economic factors, the historical factors, the technological factors that go into supporting them or bringing them down.
1: So freedom. Freedom
2: freedom within a framework of respect for other people's not always the language of rights but but generally and i mean really abstractly he describes it as valuing diversity over unity yeah so
1: freedom is tolerance then
2: basically Free, no no I, I i mean i wouldn't he's using words in really particular ways and i don't think he's i don't think he's making them all equal the same thing and freedom is an expression legally and politically of the fact that westerners have always lived with a version of christianity especially that does not impose unity of every kind because it was never able to even when it wanted to so for example the fact that you know there is a there is a unity of government and religion in the Byzantine empire but there's not in the western middle ages because there's barely even a state is for him definitive for how westerners think about freedom because they see it as natural and obvious therefore why would the state even attempt to govern your daily life specifically so that's you know that's that's a much bigger concept than Tolerance—they're not tolerating something because they're recognizing metaphysically as your law is supposed to, as common law does historically. That it's not like I'm tolerating you, right? When I am rendering to you what is naturally yours, you have it by right of nature. Right, right. By in the yeah, and so that's that's not even tolerance in the sense that you know the British Crown is tolerating dissenting Protestants, but everyone still has to support the state church in some way. So he has this philosophical, and he's saying that people's philosophical approaches to life come out of their experience of daily life and over a long period of historical experience. And those are not things that you can change, right? You are an inheritor much more than you are someone who is acting you take actions on the basis of what you have inherited.
1: Right. And so then, um, trying again here, Western civilization has a unique value to the independent human life, which he sees as definitive for us.
2: Yeah. And because he sees the independent human life, this is for him, Christianity and Western civilization are not really separable. Their relationship is obviously by the 1960s much looser than in, say, the 1860s. And as a Catholic, you know, he may or may not be in favor of that. I mean, the book comes out, Vatican II has, none of it has been figured out. Uh, So all of that is still up in the air, you know, what that's actually going to look like. But the idea that the independent human life is worthwhile, and therefore it is worth allowing it to, you know, be what it wants to be within certain parameters that are obviously going to vary between Germany or Norway or the United States. That is going to be basic because these civilization, these, these different groups, nations, whatever, states fluctuating over time within this general civilizational pattern all basically think this right? All have this basic instinct expressed religiously, legally, politically, militarily, et cetera, that the individual human life is worthwhile, right? Whether that's sanctioned by God directly or in some more nebulous sense by nature, maybe with a capital N or whatever. The place that I think he's wrong in an enormous way comes at the very end of the book. But I think he's wrong that that is actually, and I, we'll talk more about this next week, that that is actually, that basic insight is still being preserved.
1: Right, right. I was going to say, I mean, by, that's for America. By the United States yeah, no, of America no, 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 in no. 1965. Yeah, well, abortion yeah. is going to be kind of the the telltale bellwether there, I think. But it's it's now even more so uh, yep. the safety of the public uh, trumps yep. the individual human right. life. exactly. Yeah. So um, is that what we're fighting for? is is the value of humanity.
2: I think we are because we have been talking about nature, right? And using nature as a certain way to think in politically creative ways. The appeal to nature is an appeal to the idea that something is there, that there is something that is woman that is not the same thing as what is man that is not the same thing as what is child. And so these aren't really abstract things, or they can't afford to be abstract at this point, because the the basic problem that we have philosophically is a looseness with truth and words. And that looseness makes us subjects of whoever therefore defines words and truth, since we're not going to put the effort in to doing so ourselves now it's not every time in history and even at a time of crisis it's not everyone's job to assert truth assert true definitions of things but it is someone's and lots of peoples and especially now because that those are the means by which we are being controlled. We're not being controlled directly by military intervention. Right? Our countries have been radically changed, even in just people's physical appearance. If you look at photos from the 1950s to today, and nobody, nobody invaded Georgia or Oregon. So how did the people change so much? Or how did their ideas about what is a marriage change so much in the past 20 years? And those, those means of change, those as you know, quote unquote, peaceful means of change. If you don't fight against those things, you're going, you're going to lose everything that you have now and more. So you have to put forth the effort to be clear about what are you doing in your marriage? What does it mean to be a man? what are you know your children here on earth to do during the time in which they are children? Is it for them to be turned over to others, for others to teach them how to live? All of those questions have to be asked simply because you don't have the luxury of taking things for granted right now. That's, that's the nature of the challenge that we face. And so that's why I, I love Quigley's focus on civilizations as basically ideological or philosophical or, or, or theological because the stakes I think that are revealed there are that we're not really dealing with okay uh, how long can I keep you know a certain American political process going or or how can I recover the the indirect election of United States senators or something which would be good right it's if I get rid of this really basic idea that this baby gets to live because this baby was made by God and has not committed a crime and therefore should not be killed, if I get rid of that, then yeah, I think life will go on, but it will be slavery and it will be hell and you have no idea what it is that you're, you're bargaining for. you you just, you don't know what you're doing, what you're submitting to. And that is why we have to have both kind of small picture. Okay. What are we doing with education? What are we doing with the food that we eat? What are we doing with this? And also big picture thinking, because I can, I can just chill out and not think about big picture stuff, probably on a daily basis, probably like 90% of the time, but if I don't have a big picture idea of what that family is for or what a child is or whatever, then especially when I'm being constantly bombarded by all of these ideas, I don't have time or capacity to make a wise decision. And certainly collectives, groups of men, churches, whatever, don't have capacity to make wise decisions without time and food for thought And what we're trying to provide here is food for thought, lots of it over the course of the year, tons of it. But it's all at this basic idea that we are fighting for a freedom of life that is natural. So those are not Quigley's words. Those are my words, a freedom of life that is natural. I'm not asserting it because I just, I'm ornery and I don't like rules. I'm asserting it because God gave it to me. Right. In the same sense that he gave me in giving me life, the right to life also from his gift of, you know, being able to respirate naturally, I shouldn't have to, you know, choke out my own respiration in order to, you know, worry about this respiratory disease everywhere all the time. Right. So the fight that we're engaged in has very arcane historical details. People are going to have trouble understanding Omicron variant in 50 years when they look back on this. But the reason we're interested in the details is because the details lead us to the bigger picture all the time.
1: So the idea of rights as being God-givens sounds like you need a God somewhere in this thing, which um, I think is important. Maybe trying to bring this back to our, our opening question also like, is this a fight you only do for 15 minutes on Sunday morning? Uh, you, how do you distinguish? And we can't anymore, and this is the point. You can't distinguish the theological from the secular so far as your life as a Christian and the secular being the world you live in. Uh, you, you actually have to right. um, be a Christian everywhere and then realize that everywhere, your flesh and the world under the sway of of diabolical things, is striving to unseat that inheritance, which it would seem... Uh, is what makes western civilization so distinct from those those others that were before um, because it, it is uh, i don't i don't know where else you find the value of the individual human life uh, outside of christianity I, i've not seen that um, uh, other civilizations have certain types of understanding of family and uh, you know the Daodejing the the, the way um, but it, these are civilizations that still uh, understand the peasant class as being um, not human i think uh, at certain levels Different kinds of human and whatnot, yeah. and it's not as though Western civilization never had times when elites did that. Um, but you know, all men are created equal, Jefferson, right? And, and endowed with certain inalienable rights. Um, yeah, I think I think the biggest thing you've given me out of civilization is theological, and it, and which theologies endure is going to be very closely connected to which civilizations endure. Um, now, maybe that's a bad statement if I think about Rome and Greece. So I'm gonna I'm a second guess myself here and let you correct it.
2: Well, I don't. Rome and Greece did not endure as such, right? And the reason that there is so much continuity—the more you learn about the Middle Ages—with things that we think of as natural, or you know, the the assertion of freedom as an actual value in life, which I think some people think is some sort of American peculiarity or something—you find all over uh, assertions about uh, the freedom of men to take game from the forest Mm -hmm. uh, and their resentment of what's called enclosure when fields that they formerly walked over freely or forests that they formerly hunted freely are, you know, that that's changed just by, you know, lordly fiat. Those assertions that continuity are because our civilization is a Christian civilization. And that doesn't mean that I think that Christianity can't exist without Western civilization or something. It means that I am an inheritor of an inhabitant of Western civilization. And therefore it is my vocation to preserve it. Okay. Because I didn't make it and the forms of daily life and the civilizational forms, the linguistic forms, the political forms that my forefathers gave me, it is part of gratitude to preserve and to, perfect them. Okay. I can't just arbitrarily just opt into as if I were choosing to be, you know, (laughs) in the game age of empires. It's like, well, I'll be a Greeks and then I'm going to quit this game and turn into Egyptians, but that's not how life works. So I, I don't get to say, well, I guess I just won't be this or do this anymore. So yeah, civilizations are theological and ours is founded on Christian theology and really can't exist except in a very degenerate form without it. There are other, I think, Christian civilizations. And we'll talk next week about Russia because I think Quigley is, is uncharitable about Eastern theology. Hmm. and But he is right about some of its tendencies that have led to a vastly different form of civilization whether you think russians are part of the same civilization or not
1: ecclesiastes seven seven says a compromise debases the heart you're listening to brief history of power you know where to find us or you would not be here